Well, here we are at the start of Holy Week, and I don't think many of us thought this would be the way that we would be celebrating it. If you had asked me in seminary if I thought I would ever be celebrating Holy Week in a pretty much empty room talking to a phone, I would have probably told you you were nuts. And yet, here we find ourselves. And I know that this type of situation has some people grieving. All of us want to be together, and all of us look forward to the time when we can reunite and be together. At the same time, we want to recognize the gifts that God has given us through our virtual technology so that at least all being together across our different places, we can share in God's word together and God's praise and song together. And I want to encourage you today because it's Palm Sunday, and that means even if we're grieving the loss of some of our privileges and the things that we enjoy, it is a day set aside for real celebration. And so I hope you can enter into the celebration that is yours and mine this morning through the message that Palm Sunday wants to bring us. So let's go to our reading today. The account comes from the book of John, chapter 12, verses 12 to 19. And here is what God's word says. The next day, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it's written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. End of reading. The next day. That's how the passage opens up, the next day. That is, the next day because you never know what the next day will bring. One day you're meeting with people and the next day you're not. One day you're healthy and the next day you're not. One day you are celebrated and the next day you are vilified. John directs his readers to see the quick passage of time and how things quickly change. That's important for Holy Week as we celebrate Palm Sunday today and Monday Thursday on Thursday and Good Friday on Friday and Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday at the end of the week. Each day brings something new, sometimes a change for the better and sometimes a change for the worst. The crowds that are praising Jesus today will be shouting, crucify him, on Friday. As the adage says, what a difference a day makes. 
So John directs his readers to the quick passage of time to warn us that just what's happening now may not be what continues to happen. And we need to remember that too in our own lives, that what we're experiencing right now is just a day, and we don't know what tomorrow will bring. But we know that God is in it. So the question becomes, who is the God of today and tomorrow? We have to know who this Jesus is so that we can entrust him with our todays and our tomorrows. And that is precisely what John wants to do. And he wants to do that to you by showing you all the different ways that people in this passage have misunderstood who Jesus is. In fact, that's really what we see with each of the three main characters that appear other than Jesus. The first group of characters is the crowds. They worship Jesus as king, which of course they are right to do. He is king. But they misunderstand. They think Jesus is a very specific kind of king, a Jewish king, kind of like Herod, who's going to come in and overthrow the Romans. When Jesus doesn't give in to their revolutionary tendencies, in just a few days, they will be shouting for his execution. So the crowds, even though they speak rightly, don't fully understand who Jesus is. The second group that misunderstands is the group closest to Jesus, the disciples. In verse 16, we are told explicitly that they actually don't understand what's going on, and that only after Jesus' resurrection, with the gift of hindsight and Jesus' glorification, are they able to put all the pieces together and understand what's going on. And then we have a third group that misunderstands. They're the group farthest from Jesus, the Pharisees. They think that the whole world has gone after this character. Of course, they're wrong. They're exaggerating. Their fears have led them to exaggerate, and so they don't have an accurate picture of what's going on. We can learn something from that, too. We have to be careful not to let our fears exaggerate the situation. For the Pharisees... They will come up with a slew of charges against Jesus, fake charges, that they will use to whip up the emotions of the crowd, to make the crowd fearful as well, so that the crowd can exaggerate and therefore has motive for sending Jesus to the cross. So John gives us three groups, a group close to Jesus, a group far away from Jesus, and a group familiar with Jesus. And all three of these groups just don't understand who Jesus is. Which raises the question that all readers of the Gospel of John should ask. Who do we, witnessing this scene alongside John, who do we think that Jesus is? John's hope is that you will be able to enter into the celebration of today because you won't misunderstand what's going on like the other three groups. John wants you to see, and he's been at pains to show you throughout his gospel, that Jesus is the eternal word of God. The light coming into the darkness that the darkness can't overcome. That Jesus is a healer and a teacher. That Jesus is a great exorcist and a great provider. And, of course, that Jesus is the enfleshed Son of God. And therefore, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And that he comes as the Messiah to do the work of God that God has been talking about through all the Old Testament. This God will defeat death, 
He will give his people forgiveness of sins, and he will put on them his own righteousness. And that is why what the crowd sings, even though they don't fully understand it, and what we just sang, is appropriate. Hosanna. Hosanna means the one who saves us. And so we sing praise to the one who saves us. That's where John wants us to focus. Here is a king enriched with all the eternal power of God. Yet he comes in a body, in flesh, riding humbly on a donkey. This is a God born in poverty. And he knows your poverty, and he knows mine. He is a God who understands financial poverty, but he's also a God who understands the poverty of being the one left out, or the poverty of being hurt and broken, the poverty of being betrayed by his friends, the poverty of being misunderstood all the time, the poverty of desperately wanting to help people and save people and being rejected. This is the God who comes to us in poverty to meet us where we're at. And he shows his humble side, even though he comes in power, by riding on this donkey as Isaiah had prophesied long ago. It's interesting to contrast this image of Jesus with the image of Jesus in the book of Revelation when he returns at the end of time, where he's not on a humble donkey, but brilliantly displayed in the clouds and riding on a white stallion, a symbol of a military victory. By that time, it's too late. Those who know Jesus will have already been taken up by him, but those who are left will face his judgment. But that's not the picture today. The picture today is the God who descends into our poverty and meets us there for our sake. As we begin to think about the misunderstanding that the three groups have, we can begin to self-check if we allow some of those same misunderstandings to encroach into our own views about God and Jesus. Views that could harm us and make us feel like God isn't on our side if we allow them to take root. Let's just take a little bit more of an in-depth picture of what some of these misunderstandings were. The crowd, well, they misunderstand because for them, Jesus is a political fixer. He is basically around to fix the problems of today. And, well, when he doesn't, they turn on him. For the disciples, who also don't get it, Jesus was a great teacher, a great rabbi, maybe even you could say in our language today, a great philosopher, a big ideas man, who offered a way to live. He was a prophet to them, a man of God, but he wasn't really God himself. And even when Peter confesses such, we find out they don't really understand what they're saying. So the disciples still want to treat Jesus as a, as a sort of life coach. And then there are the Pharisees. Of course, they misunderstand him and see him as a threat, a threat to the life that they want to live to the status that they want to have because, well, Jesus calls us to things we don't always like. And so the Pharisees dislike Jesus because they think he demands too much. And they write him off as a cult leader, as a quack, as a wacko. Well, 
I wish I could say it wasn't true, but it just is that we make the same mistakes as all three of these groups. Like the crowds, we like to put our hope in politics, in policies, and in politicians. And even though the Lord has given us all those things, well, those things aren't our ultimate hope. And we must hope in the God who stands above and beyond them. Like the disciples, we can put our hope in our pastors, in our prophets, and in our predictions. That is, in anyone who seems to have the way for us on how we should live. And instead of worshiping the one true God, we can begin to give ourselves over to very well-meaning and maybe even wise advice, but that's not rooted in truly who Jesus is. And like the Pharisees, we can dismiss God and his power as a hoax, as crazy, as cultish, because either we don't understand what God is asking of us, or we do understand and simply reject it because we don't want to do it. If we fall into any of these three camps, and we all do sometimes, then it will be very hard for us to celebrate God and what he's doing. So John calls us back to the essential reality of who Jesus is and why he's come. The God that we worship and praise today, that we sing Hosanna about, is the God who defeats death, grants eternal life, gives us his righteousness. So that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we learn, and it is a learning process over and over again, we learn to fear no evil. And we relearn this every time we go back and discover who Jesus really is and how God is for us. We rediscover that we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil, because he's with us, and his rod and his staff, well, they comfort us. We begin to see that Jesus has defeated death, the great enemy, and that we don't have to be afraid of death. Yes, it's natural to fear death, but what I'm saying is it doesn't have to be something that steals our serenity, our peace, because death is afraid of Jesus, because Jesus has defeated it. You, who are in Jesus, can see that death is nothing more than a threshold. Now think about that. Yes, we all must taste and experience death because sin is in us and that's the consequence of sin, but it's just a threshold. Imagine walking from one room to another in your house and that bottom plate there is the threshold. Well, that threshold is so thin and so narrow that even if I were to stand sideways, I couldn't fit my whole body in that threshold. It just, it's just too small. Death used to be like a door that closed off one room to another. And when people died, they were separated from God and from each other. And Jesus has broken down that door. And now all that death is, is just this little strip of a few inches that we cross over from life to life. And God is with us even through that transition. The hope of Christianity, then, isn't that God can empower you to live a good and anxious free life. Although God is rich in mercy to do that sometimes. The hope of Christianity isn't that you'll be spared suffering. No, Jesus says in this life you will have many troubles. The hope of Christianity isn't that Christian wisdom is a guide for how to run a country. And that if people just were more 
Christian-y in the way they did things, the world would be a better place. No, Christianity isn't about teaching politicians how to rule or about how pastors are to pastor. No, the hope of Christianity is very simple, friends. It's a person. It's a person. The hope of Christianity is a crucified man who happens also to be God. It's not about doctrines. Doctrines teach us who this man is. And it's not about ideas or philosophy. It's all about a crucified person. The crowds, the disciples, the Pharisees, this is the one thing they always want to forget. It's the one thing they don't want to dwell on. But it happens to be the one thing St. Paul told the Corinthians they should focus exclusively on. That they should know nothing else but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Why? Because in the crucified Jesus, we find all the hope to sing praise to Hosanna. Now, I want to read you a quote. I know it's never exciting to have someone just read something to you. However, I find this incredibly important. And I can't say it any better than it's said here. And so if you'll indulge me a bit, and strain to listen to these few paragraphs. They are an amazing summary of who this man is and what he's doing and what we're celebrating here at Holy Week. This comes from Fleming Rutledge's book, The Crucifixion. And listen to what she says about this week and about this man, Jesus Christ, and what and who he is. Forgiveness is not enough. Belief in redemption is not enough. Wishful thinking about the intrinsic goodness of every human being is not enough. Inclusion is not a sufficiently inclusive message, nor does it deliver real justice. There are some things, many things, that must be condemned and set right if we are to proclaim a God of both justice and mercy. Only a power independent of this world can overcome the grip of the enemy of God's purposes for his creation. Jesus Christ, which Hebrews 1-2 calls the heir of all things, offered himself to be the condemned and the, and the righteous one, giving himself up in full knowledge after Gethsemane of what would happen to him, and in perfect union with his Father, he went to Golgotha, carrying his own cross, upon which he was nailed, despised and rejected by men. At the historical time and place of his inhuman and godless crucifixion, all the demonic powers, loose in the world, convened in Jerusalem and unleashed their forces upon the incarnate Son of God. Derelict, outcast, and God forsaken, he hung there as a representative to all humanity and suffered condemnation in the place of all humanity to break the power of sin and death over all humanity. None of this would avail against the world's evil were it not for the righteousness of God. In Greek, the diakosune theou, the power of God to make right what has been wrong 
is that we see by faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the third day. Unless God is the one who raises the dead and calls into existence the things which do not exist, there cannot be serious talk of forgiveness for the worst of the worst, the mass murderers, torturers, and serial killers, and even for the least of the worst, the quotidian offenses against our common humanity that cause marriages to fail, friendships to end, enterprises to collapse, and silent misery to be the common lot of millions. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. This is what is happening at Golgotha. All the manifold biblical images with their richness, complexity, and depth come together as one to say this. The righteousness of God is revealed in the cross of Christ. The precious blood of the Son of God is the perfect sacrifice for sin. The ransom is paid to deliver the captives. The gates of hell are stormed. The Red Sea is crossed and the enemy drowned. God's judgment has been executed upon sin. The disobedience of Adam has been recapitulated. In the obedience of Christ, a new creation is coming into being. Those who put their trust in Christ are incorporated into his life. The kingdoms of this present evil age are passing away, and the promised kingdom of God is manifest, not in triumphalist crusades, but in the cruciform witness of the church. And you and me, the church. From within Adam's own flesh, the incarnate son fought and was victorious over Satan on our behalf and in our place. Only this power, the transcendent victory won by the Son of God, is capable of reorienting the cosmos to its rightful creator. This is what the righteousness of God has achieved through the cross and resurrection and is now accomplishing by the power of the Spirit and will complete itself in the day of Christ Jesus. Amen? That is why we praise Him. That is why we can face today and tomorrow. That is the God who rides on the donkey. That is the one to whom we give all our praise and thanks. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have sent your Son to us to die for us as a propitiation for our sin and to rise to new life. We thank you for the gift of the Spirit, which quickens and alivens us to faith. We thank you for our brothers and sisters, who we miss, but who are with us in spirit and who encourage us and help us on our walk. Lord, teach us to walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death. Teach us to teach others this walk by pointing them to who you rightfully and truly are. Help us to avoid the pitfalls and mistakes that we saw in the three groups here, and when we do, to have the wisdom 
to repent and to find you as you are in your word, revealed as true Son of God. And so, Father, we pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.